Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on in the show, the story behind a new art installation in Vancouver and how it's expected to enhance the reputation of the city's art industry. But first up, let's look at how the federal government's rules around passive income may have an impact on more businesses than expected. The federal government has maintained that its proposed taxation changes will not impact the vast majority of Canadian businesses. However, our next guest believes that rules around passive income will create a ripple effect that could impact the financing available to small Canadian businesses. Ian Russell joins us now. He is the president and CEO at the Investment Industry Association of Canada, and he joins us on the line today from Montreal. Ian, as always, thanks. Good to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Haley. It's my pleasure to be with you and Kirk again. Well, tell me about the ripple effect here. How does that happen? Well, um, it's, uh, I guess there are two dimensions uh, to this. One is uh, the government, uh, in uh, looking for a remedy, um, segmented these private corporations between smaller ones and larger ones. And um, it tried to um, alleviate the uh, tax issue um, the passive income tax issue on very small companies. Right. The ripple effect is that uh, the reality is that even for those very small uh, private companies, uh, and these are the types of companies that would be uh, used by professionals in Canada or small business owners. So their threshold and, is something like what, 150000 well, right? it's um, it's fifty thousand um, dollars, sort of a uh, a maximum, um, okay. fifty thousand income in uh, in passive uh, passive income. Anything okay. that uh, moves above that is uh, um, subject to the uh, subject to the uh, the tax. Okay. Um, so, and that's sort of an annual uh, passive income number, a flow number. Um, so um, what what happens with smaller businesses? The reason why they're affected is that uh, that if you uh, and there's a cumulative amount of uh, passive income um, that uh, goes up to about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but fifty thousand dollars a year with a cap on it, and um, it it translates to roughly um, a passive in investment of of a uh, million dollars. So. Um, for a doctor and a lawyer, um, you can uh, save fifty thousand a year, and uh, that passive income won't be taxed. But uh, once you exceed that uh, that threshold, um, then uh, you are subject to uh, to tax. And so the ripple effect is that um, for uh, small professionals that are saving for even retirement, a million dollars. Doesn't go a long way, um, and and uh, the government hasn't made provisions for either the grandfathering of uh, of the uh, the threshold, uh, the allowable threshold. Um, uh, in other words, months that were saved previously um, aren't qualified or, or would be subject would would be part of the uh, the overall uh, total amount. And secondly, there's no uh, indexation feature. So somehow, if if uh, price indexation goes up, that uh, the allowable threshold would increase, not permitted. So uh, it really is um, limiting 
certainly professionals who look at passive income as uh, a retirement and also businesses that need a cushion to weather good times and, well, weather bad times. The uh, other group um, are the much larger um, corporations, private corporations. And um, these uh, companies are, are companies that are making well over 50000 annual in passive income. And they will be still subject to, um, to the tax on any dividends that uh, would be paid out of the passive, uh, passive income. So in the Parliamentary Budget Office did some analysis and showed that uh, there would be some 50,000 private corporations in Canada that, um, would, uh, would, that have um, large holdings of uh, passive income and uh, that would be affected by these tax proposals. It turns out that these are uh, private corporations that are heavily engaged uh, in the small business sector. They're uh, integrated into that sector. Uh, they provide a lot of financing, angel marketplace. Uh, they buy businesses, they uh, grow them, they sell them, they provide advice to business owners. So in effect, they are um, catalysts for the growth of uh, uh, small businesses uh, in the country. Uh, obviously, that activity will be um, dampened because now the uh, dividends that they earn on uh, th those investments, uh, because they are passive income, they're going to be taxed at this very punitive rate of 75%. And uh, the evidence is there. I've seen anecdotal evidence of uh, these kinds of companies that are active in the small business sector that are going... Uh, looking to do the same kinds of things, but do them in the United States. So huh. the ripple effect is Canadian small business will be affected. Interesting. Uh, and when you talk about sort of the needs of small businesses, what, what may no longer be available to them if they're coming to firms that now have less money on the table or less money in Canada? Well, um, it obviously is detrimental because Canada has um, some very acute um, problems uh, in in financing small business, there's not enough uh, entrepreneurial capital in Canada. And uh, these angel investors with these larger private corporations provided an important supplement. I'll give you one example that's uh, not very well known in Canada, but um, there's something like 1.1 million businesses that employ, I think it's nearly 10 million Canadians out of a private sector that uh, employs 11 million Canadians. So small businesses are pretty important. A very high proportion of those Canadian businesses are, they're subject to the same demographic pressures that we see in everyday life, which is to say the owners of those entrepreneurial businesses uh, are getting older. They're looking to transition the business or basically sell the business um, and take their retirement. Now, obviously, retirement ages are going to vary, so this can go on for maybe another 10 years. But you've got these aging owners who are looking for ways to sell these businesses. And uh, that is why um, capital uh, becomes really important for, uh, let's say, millennials who want to buy these businesses uh, or consortiums that want to buy these businesses. They need the capital uh, to be able to do it. Uh, the existing owners, the other way it often works is that uh, existing owners of businesses will will go public. So they will 
um, issue uh, equity shares uh, for their business and in a way, and then so they're selling their business through the stock exchange to investors and finding an exit strategy. Well, if there's less capital available, um, either in the private market or in the public market on the exchange, um, then that transition process for those Canadian businesses is going to be more and more difficult. And what will happen is if they can't sell their businesses, owners will obviously wind them up and close them down. And that entrepreneurial capital will disappear from the uh, small business sector. Uh, that's going to have some very serious negative impacts on the Canadian economy. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this uh, a taxation of passive income in private corporations is um, the, the cause of the problem. But uh, clearly, it's aggravating an already um, difficult problem that Canadian businesses have in uh, accessing uh, capital. As you know, Ian, uh, we already have as a country uh, quite a challenge in terms of investment. Uh, and, and, uh, and I wonder whether you think that this was one of the unintended consequences of the federal moves in this case, or do you believe that somehow the, the federal government just is, is really trying to some degree to, uh, to, to limit what people can do in terms of their flexibility with a small business in this country? Yeah, well, that is an excellent question, and and I, uh, I, I would my conclusion would be this is a very, a classic unintended consequence. These uh, passive income rules, uh, tax rules, were not well thought out. Uh, there was a lot of scrambling around in terms of uh, trying to change them, and again, those changes, some of them haven't even taken place yet. Um, but it would seem that the quick solutions that have been found, and we saw them laid out in the budget, uh, which I've just gone through and said are not adequate, they came very quickly. I don't think there's been any kind of a full-scale analysis done on this, and certainly the only research that I've seen at all was done by the Parliamentary Budget Office that just simply looked at uh, passive income, uh, in private corporations and uh, where was it? How big was it? I mean, we're talking about a lot of uh, investment and a lot of um, um, both holdings of assets, 200 and roughly, I think in my paper, it's about nearly $250 billion in uh, financial assets and uh, flows that are on the order of uh, $25 billion a year. That's the kind of numbers that are happening from uh, this, uh, these private corporations. And uh, my view is that uh, the uh, activities of those companies are not well understood. There hasn't been sufficient analysis, certainly on the impact that these proposals would have. And uh, so to your point, uh, Kirk, we've ended up with uh, serious unintended consequences. And that's why one of our recommendations to Ottawa, they're not going to uh, pair back um, these these tax proposals. So at a minimum, what they have to do is monitor what's happening. How much of this capital is going south? Is it significant? What impact is it having on small business? And, um, you know, it's uh, whether that takes place or not, we'll, uh, we'll have to see. But uh, it is uh, a serious uh, problem. In your estimation, Ian, what's the timeline on that? Are we looking at maybe a year until we really start to notice some impacts, a couple years, or might it be more immediate? 
Do you know what? It's happening right. It happened right away. I mean, I've been getting, you know, anecdotal evidence on these kinds of uh, private corporations that are very involved in the uh, small business sector in Vancouver, um, in uh, Calgary, um, in Toronto. And I think why it's moved quickly is we've uh, we've all we've had coinciding with this tax reform in the U.S. So the taxation of uh, small business um, and private uh, partnerships in the U.S. has uh, uh, lightened. And uh, so the opportunities are even more attractive. So I think the reaction has been fairly quick. Now, it takes time to set up affiliates in the U.S. and to get your operations refocused. So I think it started very quickly. I've been surprised at hearing it, but plans are underway to move and refocus uh, these private corporations that are engaged in uh, um, uh, financing investment banking in the uh, small business sector. And it's going to accelerate, I would say, over the next four or five years. Uh, so that's where it, where it becomes really important for Canada to monitor the, monitor the the kinds of capital flows that are happening. Um, and those numbers, by the way, if you look at um, foreign direct investment, the flows of uh, direct capital uh, into the U.S., those numbers have started to accelerate over the course of the past year. But is somebody now running a large association that um, that in a lot of ways oversees uh, the climate of investment in industry in this country, has it already affected the advice you're giving investors? Um, well, I, you know, again, I, I think that, um, in terms of advice, uh, at the retail level, um, there've already been, uh, it's, it's not the, um, investing in small business. Um, well, the activity has been uh, weak for some time in terms of, uh, our smaller dealers who are, uh, play important roles in um, in the small business sector, uh, again, um, my industry so far is probably um, less affected uh, in in that um, we're more heavily involved in the financing of uh, large companies, um, and when and and the area that um, uh, we are involved in, I guess, is the midsize. Uh, uh, smaller companies that are listed, uh, but where the big impact of this is happening, um, I think over the next year or two is going to be in the uh, small private companies that uh, typically um, rely on private investors. It's uh, it's typically not the kinds of investments that uh, the investment dealers would uh, carry out. It would be the kind of investment that uh, um, individuals. Um, some of the institutions would uh, would engage in family offices. That's uh, and there's that's the angel networks in effect. Um, not so much venture capital, but the angel networks, which provide a lot of early stage uh, financing. That's where the biggest impact is uh, is going to be. But as an association, we have been um, very vocal about the need for things, and we've talked about this on the show for things like uh, incentives to encourage yeah. uh, small companies to grow and to go public. Uh, well, that's just it. You, you know, you want these small businesses to become your 
that's yeah, right. You're, you're bailiwick as well exactly. at some point. Yeah, that, that's exactly the point. You, and you don't want it yeah. to be the other way around. Small companies become large companies. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you don't want you don't want medium sized companies to become small companies. No. No. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Ian, as always, really appreciate you coming on the program to share your insight. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And uh, thank you for your uh, great questions. And uh, I hope that uh, the conversation has been helpful to your, to your listeners. Absolutely. That's Ian Russell, President and CEO at the Investment Industry Association of Canada. So our tech panel is going to join us next with a look at the latest industry news. Throughout the month of June, two pieces by world-renowned sculptor Richard Hudson will be on display at Park Vancouver. It marks Hudson's Canadian debut, and it's expected to draw art enthusiasts from across the country. Joining us now are two people behind bringing the work to Vancouver. We're joined this morning by Ian McDonald, owner of Liquidity Wines, who's also an avid art collector. Ian, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And also with us is Krista Froch, an agent at Sotheby's International Realty Canada. Krista, good to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. So Ian, I, I want to start with you from a collector's perspective. Tell us a bit about Richard Hudson's work, how it's received, and how maybe you first came to encounter it. Yeah, I um, was invited to a show that Sotheby's hosts every year in England at the home of the Duke of Devonshire. It's called Chatsworth. It's one of the major of historic castles in uh, in England. And uh, every September, they host a show called Beyond Limits, where they bring together some of the most famous works of sculpture around, from around the world that are available for exhibition and sale. And I was invited by the Duke to go to the showing that they had uh, two years ago. And uh, at that showing, they had a number of fantastic works of art. But one of the ones that really caught my eye and that I was really, really impressed with was a piece called The Tear by Richard Hudson. And that really started me into uh, a lot of work over the last couple of years with Sotheby's and then with Richard Hudson about bringing his work to Canada to show it for the first time. So actually, the tear is one of the piece of the two pieces that will be shown here, and it's a spectacular sculpture. Krista, we think of uh, a place to show a, a renowned piece of art and well, several pieces of art as a maybe a gallery, not necessarily a place like Park. Is Park trying to position itself? As a, as a place that will attract, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, people who are um, appreciative? Um, the, I had the opportunity to go to the park um, on the sixth floor, the, the D6 lounge, about three weeks ago for the first time. And it was a, a very pleasant surprise. Um, it's beautiful what they've done. And you have all this different architecture and different viewpoints from the city and I think that sculpture works very well within that uh, space that they've created and I would say that it would be a very nice place to uh, continue after um, this special event that we're doing to uh, bring in other artists and and showcase different sculpture from around the world. Ian, you mentioned it's been several years' work to try and get these two pieces of art to Vancouver. In international circles, is Vancouver really thought of as a destination for art? I think this is it's up and coming. This is one of the first major showings of, of an artist like this here. And I, and I think that from the art community that I've talked to, that 
there's a real, real big interest, and I think we'll get a lot of publicity worldwide for what we're doing here with this showing. And I feel confident that we're going to be able to attract other major artists and works of art to be shown in Vancouver in the future. So, Krista, tell us a little bit about what um, what Sotheby's will will help do in this case in order to draw an audience uh, and not just have the, uh, the the patrons of D six be the uh, be the ones that uh, that have uh, an opportunity to see the Hudson art. Well, Sotheby's, the auction house, has um, has been in the business since seventeen forty four and showcases artists and art and collectors from around the world. We, as Sotheby's International Realty Canada, are under that umbrella, and we have the opportunity to work with real estate at that level. And I think that Sotheby's is we're international, and we're, we're showcasing art, Real estate, diamonds. We have the wine. We have the wine division as well, which um, is, is something that I'm involved in, and it's um, yeah, it's, it's, it's special. How does having showings of art and art that's internationally recognized impact a city? What benefits does it bring? If, as Ian said, this showing may lead to another installation, may lead to another down the road, Krista. I think we just have an opportunity to showcase our city for other art lovers in the world. And from a real estate and a tourist point of view, and just what Vancouver has to offer BC and Canada as a whole. Ian, as a, as a collector, um, how much do you now want to focus on ensuring that the wider public sees what it is that you're procuring? Yeah, we've, we've engaged two major public relations firms here in Vancouver to reach out to to media and all publications to let the public know that these works will be on display right through June 29th. And they're open, it's free, they can wander up to the sixth floor to the plaza at Park and look at these works. Um, and it's something, a couple of these works when it's all finished here will be moved to liquidity to put on display for the balance of the summer as well. So our winery is located in the South Okanagan and we feature lots of work of different artists from around the world and we're going to be really excited to feature a couple of Richard Hudson's pieces for the duration of the summer once the show is over with in Vancouver. And then what happens uh, with the pieces? Do you, uh, do you have like a, you know, a fourth bedroom in the house type of thing? <laughs> uh, it... <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'll be able to keep some of these. these uh, <laughs> they're, some of them are quite, uh, well, they're beautiful works and they're um, at a price point that uh, may be beyond my reach at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. But at least the, the nice part is that we're going to be able to showcase them to the public for an extended period of time. We're hoping that a couple of them end up in private collections and uh, are kept in Vancouver uh, forever and ever. But uh, if, some, if a piece of work isn't sold, then eventually it'll work its way back to, uh, to London, England, to, um, to the home of the sculpture um, Richard Hudson. Mm-hmm. And Krista, because these pieces travel the world, do you expect and will people travel the world to see them specifically in Vancouver? Or is it more expected that we'll have local audiences or audiences within Canada visiting these pieces? Oh, I would say first, we're a very international city. And um, I think that 
we will have a larger audience than just Vancouver. Um, we have Sotheby's, the, the real estate company, we have offices around the world, and I've reached out to numerous of my colleagues who have clients that are interested in the pieces because it's the first time that they've been to Canada. And I believe that in North America, we will have quite an audience. And because we're such an international city, I know that we already have very interested parties to come and view the pieces from around the world. Great. Ian, Krista, thank you both very much for joining the program to talk about this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That's Krista Froch, an agent with Sotheby's International Realty Canada, and Ian McDonald, owner of Liquidity Wines. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. Make sure you subscribe to us. Find our past episodes on iTunes and Stitcher and, of course, at our website, BIV.com. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>